0: I trust you listeners had a wonderful and meaningful Thanksgiving. Hopefully, you had little to zero angst about spending time with close and extended family members. Or maybe you did not spend Thanksgiving with any family at all, but had a Friendsgiving. Or maybe you skipped the holiday entirely and stayed home to read a good book, binge watch a show, or watch football. We all know the holidays come with their own level of stress. Most of us are more familiar with bad stress, called distress, and not just on a holiday or during the holiday season, but sometimes on a daily basis, depending on what's going on in our life. If you mostly experience holidays with anticipation and as a joyful participant in most every facet, with most of your expectations met, then you are probably a person who experiences eustress or what psychologists call beneficial stress. If you are one of these you stress people, please email me at redstatebluemom at gmail.com. I really want to know your secret. I know less than a handful of women who feel you stress during the holidays, but a whole bunch of men who do. Gee, I wonder why there's this discrepancy in holiday stress levels between the sexes. I'm going to let you listeners figure that one out on your own. If you have a hard time coming up with an answer, you may want to Google holiday workload women versus men and scroll down the list of what comes up on your screen. This Thanksgiving, I still cleaned for company, got groceries in the house, but mostly had an easy peasy Thanksgiving day because we went out to eat. Unless we were traveling, it's the first time in decades that I did not cook. The decision to eat out was made by me because I spent the week before and the few days early in the week preceding the holiday feeling pretty sick. So sick that I thought I might have breakthrough COVID and went and got tested. I was negative, thank heavens. At least by Thanksgiving, I was feeling much better and no longer contagious and could enjoy time with my family without all the work of cooking and cleaning up. I was very grateful for those people at the restaurant who were working and doing everything that needed to be done for me and my family so that we could have, I could have, a stress-free, yummy Thanksgiving meal. The restaurant manager told us all employees were working shorter shifts so that they too could enjoy Thanksgiving with their families. I loved hearing this and remembered when I was a young, single, Childless woman and worked in a nursing home, I would work Thanksgiving Day so my coworkers, who had families, would be able to spend the holiday with them. We had some Thanksgiving season excitement this year. My son was home for the month of November and working from the house. I'm so grateful for modern technology because my kids can come home for a while and not miss any work time at all. One evening before Thanksgiving, as I was curled up on the couch feeling puny, my husband's son, and I landed on a TV channel that was playing the movie, Aliens. It was the second Alien franchise movie starring Sigourney Weaver. My son was relaxing on the other end of the couch from me. Toward the latter half of the movie, my husband got up to go to the kitchen. It was during the part of the movie where the queen mother of the aliens is trying to kill Sigourney Weaver's character, Ripley, who's carrying a little girl, the only survivor of a previous alien attack on the planet of colonizers. The little girl's nickname is Newt. Ripley is tightly holding Newt along with a large, very lethal weapon, and they're trying to get away from the queen and her minions in any way they can. So, essentially, a very scary... Very action-packed and very loud part of the movie. My husband was rattling around in the kitchen. So that we could hear him, he loudly yelled to us in the family room, There's a snake in here! My son and I looked at each other and rolled our eyes. We big-time rolled our eyes and shook our heads. I said to my son, He's trying to yank our chains because, frankly, My husband is always teasing someone about something. My son then said to me, he knows this is the scariest part of the movie, so he's just got to do this to us. He can't help himself. And then my son yells to my husband, yeah, dad, yeah, right, there's a snake in the kitchen, sure. In a sarcastic, we don't believe you for one minute tone. Then we heard my husband scream, oh my God! He's standing up by the fridge and arching his back like he's going to bite me. Perfect timing, because by now, the alien queen mother is striking out at Ripley and Newt, who are in the middle of a big, hairy, gooey fight, because the queen is trying to get her acid-dripping saliva on them, and they're trying to elude her evilness. I then heard the pantry door open, and I realized my husband was getting the broom. I remember thinking, he's now using props when he's yanking our chains? So I got up from my comfy spot on the couch, intending to yell at him to stop trying to scare us when the Aliens movie was doing a good job of it, and I headed to the kitchen to find a snake. Not just any snake, but a poisonous snake, a copperhead, a small copperhead with its distinctive hourglass-shaped pattern but still poisonous and slithering as my husband was trying to get him to the back porch door with the broom. I let out a blood-curdling scream, as was probably heard in movie theaters during the original viewing of the Aliens movie, which then caused my son to come quickly into the kitchen and take a look-see. Then he ran to grab a dustpan to try to lift the snake up so he could throw him outside. By now, it's total mayhem with yelling and broom bristles swishing and the sound of the plastic dustpan scraping on the floor as my husband and son are trying to herd the snake into the dustpan without getting bit. Of course, I'm doing a really great job of holding the back door open while giving the guys directions on how to herd the snake into the dustpan to get it to the back door. Somehow, in all the chaos, the snake is in the dustpan and hurled out the back door where it lands right next to the large flower pot that I had planned on gussying up for the holidays because it can be seen out the back door from the family room. We watched the snake slither under the flower pot. Right then and there, I scratched something off my holiday to-do list. I slammed the back door, and then we all started laughing, chattering, and reviewing the events that just transpired. First of all, How did that snake ever get into the house? We didn't even have our Christmas tree up yet. And anyway, we have a fake one, but we store it covered in the garage, so maybe a snake could still get under the cover and curl up on a branch undetected. I don't know. It's a big mystery how that snake got into the house, even a mystery to our pest control guy. Some of you listeners might even say this snake incident is a metaphor a metaphor this podcaster can use to her full advantage. You're darn tootin' because, after all, I'm a podcaster whose subject matter most always has a political angle, and there's a lot of snakes in the grass when it comes to the field of politics. Speaking of political snakes, let me take you back, way back, to Donald Trump's first presidential campaign, the one against Hillary Clinton, in 2016. At his rallies then, and since elected president, Trump, who avoided teleprompters feeling his free-form, impromptu emoting moved the crowds more than any written script ever could, would often cite the lyrics of a song by Oscar Brown Jr. called The Snake. Only, in typical Trump fashion, not Getting his facts straight, he would tell the rally crowd the song was by L. Wilson. It definitely was sung by soul singer L. Wilson, but not written by him. If you're a Tennessee Volunteers football fan, upon hearing Trump say the name L. Wilson, you probably thought of the University of Tennessee football player and former NFL linebacker for the Denver Broncos. L. Wilson, and then said, I didn't know L. Wilson was a lyricist, songwriter, and musician too, but I digress. Every now and then at a rally, while emoting, or freeform riffing, as I liked to say, Trump would take a folded sheet of paper out of his shirt pocket and start reading the lyrics to The Snake out loud to the crowd he would use a portion of the lyrics as a parable of how dangerous lax immigration policies are to the United States. One stanza of the song talks about a, quote, tender-hearted woman, end quote, who finds a half-frozen snake on a path she's walking and rescues it, but the snake bites her. This was Trump comparing the United States to the tender-hearted woman. Because being kind to immigrants would, to quote Trump, come back to bite us. Trump has used this metaphor for years to whip the crowd into a frothy racist fervor at his rallies. What Trump most obviously did not know about Oscar Brown Jr., who wrote the song, The Snake, was that Oscar in his younger years was a former Communist Party member though that probably wouldn't bother Trump since he's told us he's friends with Vladimir Putin. Oscar was also a black nationalist, a civil rights activist, and an unsuccessful progressive candidate for the Illinois state legislature, and then an unsuccessful Republican candidate for the U.S. Congress. That's a big transition that may need to be explored in another podcast. Just saying. Why no one told Mr. Trump he was quoting lyrics written by a black nationalist, former Communist Party member, and then progressive, we'll never know. If I was texting what I just said to someone instead of saying this on a podcast, right now I'd be texting in all caps, L-O-L and OOPS. Trump, like the Nazi Party in World War II, used linguistics as a political tool. These days, there's a whole research field in linguistics called metaphor theory. Those snakes-in-the-grass Nazis were very good at metaphors. We all know Trump is too, and when you add his kind of white, folksy way of saying things, using metaphors turns into one of Trump's superpowers. Comparing undesirables and immigrants to animals, insects, and beasts is nothing politically new. In Nazi Germany, Jews were called vermin. Trump likes to metaphorically refer to immigrants as snakes so that fear and disgust are triggered by the person hearing his metaphor, because the majority of people, like me, do not like snakes. By calling immigrants snakes, It also made Trump the snake charmer or snake tamer, the hero who protects you from these vile immigrant creatures. In September of 2019, a few years after Trump was elected president, a family member of Oscar Brown Jr., while sorting through dusty cassette tapes, found an unknown song that had been recorded by Oscar called Illegal Immigrants. The family had no idea who his backup band was on the newly discovered song, when it was written, or where and when it was recorded. It's all a mystery. The song's lyrics give the point of view of a Mexican migrant. One stanza of the lyrics say, Immigrants illegally on land where our Mexico used to stand, driven off and confined across a gringo borderline. It takes mucho grande ignorance to call us the illegal immigrants. Oscar Brown's family finding the song turned out to be a rebuttal to Trump's racist rally comments from Oscar himself. At the time the song was found, Oscar had already passed away. Let's just say that karma bit Trump from beyond the grave with the song. Before Oscar passed in 2005, he told his daughter, Maggie Brown, quote, You can't drown out noise with noise. You can't out-hate hate. You want to get with people who know this isn't the way. We're going to have to come together. There is a race going on, and we have to win it, end quote. I suggest you listeners get on YouTube and pull up the song, Illegal Immigrants, by Oscar Brown Jr. I've listened to the song and the music. The lyrics are really catchy and apropos to the time we live in now. And the song has a really great beat, too. I found myself a movin' and a shaking my booty, and it's not an easy thing to do when you're almost 65. Believe you me. Now here it's December, already, and the year-end holidays are here. Maybe you celebrated Hanukkah at the beginning of the month. Maybe you'll be celebrating Christmas or Festivus if you're a diehard Seinfeld fan. Or maybe you'll celebrate Kwanzaa the last week of the month. If you're a pagan, maybe you'll celebrate Sol Invictus, the birth of the unconquered, invincible sun. Or maybe you don't celebrate anything in December at all. There are some Christian-based religions that don't celebrate Christmas— because they say Jesus Christ was not born on December 25th, and that date and its celebrations come from pagan times. Those Christian-based religions are not wrong. December 25th was the date of the celebration of Sol Invictus, and also came a few days after the week-long Feast of Saturnalia in honor of the Roman god Saturn. After Jesus Christ's death and over time, the Roman Empire became Christianized. This was due in large part to the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity, Constantine, who lived in a palace complex in Constantinople, the capital of the Roman Empire at the time. The city was renamed Istanbul in 1930 after 1,600 years of being called Constantinople. As a child, Emperor Constantine was raised in the cult of the unconquered, invincible son before he found Christianity as an adult. His pagan beliefs and his empire's pagan belief systems were incorporated into the celebration we now call Christmas. This was an easy transition for Constantine to make for himself and his empire's inhabitants. As a recent convert to Christianity, he would have felt Christ was the light of the world, not unlike our solar system's sun. So many of the traditions celebrated in ancient times became part of the Christmas celebrations of today. In my October and November podcasts two-part series, while discussing the origins of Thanksgiving, I mentioned the Pilgrims and the Puritans. While both religious groups had feast days and days of thanksgiving at various times during every year to honor their many blessings from God, they did not celebrate Christmas at all because of its ancient pagan connections. So, if you were raised in and still adhere to a Christian faith like the 2x2s, two Jehovah's Witnesses, Seventh day Adventists, Quakers, or Churches of Christ, you won't be stressed in the least by December's holiday chores and traditions because you won't be doing them at all. This Christmas, we won't be celebrating the holiday as we traditionally do in my family because we will be on an international trip and in Istanbul, Turkey. We took a leap of faith last February and bought four tickets to Istanbul at a bargain basement price. These tickets and this trip are our family's Christmas presents for probably the next decade. But again, I digress. We are a family who suffers from wanderlust. We are also a family who values time together and experiences shared much more than material things. We are also a family who gives much time, energy, and resources to our communities and its needs. Our February leap of faith in buying the plane tickets included our thoughts that COVID would be largely under control by the time December 2021 rolled around. Well, we all know now that we were very wrong on that assumption, but we're fully vaccinated and the four of us have had the booster shot too. From past international travel trip requirements aimed at staying healthy, I'm also vaccinated for several kinds of hepatitis, typhoid, and yellow fever, just like all my military friends are. A heads up here, January's podcast may sound like part or all travelogue. Time will tell. There are always interesting stories to tell from every trip I've ever taken, whether it's international or domestic. This year, after our Thanksgiving season snake experience, and as I take my seat on the plane to go to Istanbul, I'll be hoping there will be no real-life replay of the Samuel L. Jackson movie, Snakes on a Plane. If I see a snake, my fellow airline passengers will be hearing this mama letting out one mama of a blood-curdling scream. As those listeners who are Christians celebrate the Christmas holiday this year, and think of the Bible's holy family and the Christmas story, please remember, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus could have been considered refugees in their day. Political refugees. Not unlike a lot of the refugees currently at our southern border who are escaping violence and death in their countries of origin. Mothers and fathers trying to keep their children safe. Part of the Christmas story tells us that King Herod the Great, upon finding out from soothsayers that the birth of a king of the Jews had occurred in his kingdom, ordered his troops to go out and kill all male babies two years old and younger, a power moved to keep him king of the Jews. Joseph took Mary and baby Jesus and fled to Egypt to be safe because of this threat to the well-being of baby Jesus. What if there had been guards at the Egyptian border who refused to allow Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus safe harbor in their country and turned them away? What would they have done? Where would they have gone to be safe? How radically different would world history have been? I know Christians who would quote Matthew 19.26, where it says, With God, all things are possible. And God would not have allowed anything to hurt the Holy Family, especially baby Jesus. But I can't help but think of the Holocaust and the deaths of millions of people at the hands of the Nazis. Deaths, not just of Jews, but also of many others who were not Jewish including those people of Christian-based faiths who didn't celebrate Christmas, like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, I can't help but wonder if history would have been different towards baby Jesus' fate. Would Christians be celebrating Sol Invictus instead of Christmas? The holiday season is a time of reflection, a time for giving of yourself and your resources, a time of celebration. Long before Jesus Christ was born, Jews and the pagans who were their neighbors knew about and did their best to live by the golden rule. Long before the prophet Muhammad stated and did his best to live by the golden rule, the Chinese philosopher Confucius exhorted his followers to do unto others what you would have them do unto you. It's an ancient universal principle acknowledged by every major faith on this planet and by those who have no faith of any kind. This universal principle works for the greater good. Treating people like you would like to be treated. Show good intent. Be kind. Show grace. Because on any given day, you do not know what battles another person is fighting. And your kindness and your grace can make all the difference in their life and in the whole world too. Happy holidays to all y'all.